want to take too much time here at the very beginning uh, issuing too many thanks and being too sentimental because I want to be about the business of preaching God's word. But on behalf of my family, we want to thank you for inviting us to be here at Casa Grande. We, we left a very loving church in Kansas to move to Texas and became part of a very loving church there. And we've left that loving church and have come to yet another loving church. And I'm hoping with uh, the experience that I've had in the previous two churches that I've pastored, that I bring something here to Casa Grande, that we may all together be growing in sanctification, in light of God's word, in the work and mission of the church. And those are some of those things that we're going to be considering today as we come to 1 Timothy. This begins a series in which we're going to go through the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, that which is called the pastoral epistles, those letters that Paul wrote to his pastors, specifically Timothy and Titus, who he had sent out to do the mission and work of the church. And as we embark upon and explore these things, we want to come to an understanding of what our job is as a church. What are we to be doing? What do we do as a church amongst each other as we help to grow and sanctify one another? What is our calling as the church in this world as we even go out with the message of the gospel that we may win the lost and dying to Christ and they may come to a saving knowledge of the truth and so be saved? And so these are some of those things as, that we're going to consider together as a church as we come into this letter. If you would open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now I'm reading today from the Legacy Standard Bible, bear with me. Uh, as I had to figure out which Bibles I was going to single out, which ones were going to go in boxes and be moved to the house, and which one I was going to uh, uh, hold nearby. And since most of my teaching has been from the LSB over the last couple of years, then this is the translation that I have not packed and had with me in my truck so that <laughs> I have this, uh, this translation to read from this morning. If you're not familiar with the Legacy Standard, if you've been somebody that's been committed to the New American Standard Bible, the LSB is basically considered to be the most recent translation of the NASB. It's going to be slightly different from what uh, most of you are probably reading in the English Standard Version. There is a great Bible app that I would commend to you. It's called Literal Word. And the Literal Word Bible app, which is free, it's a tremendous resource, in fact, with all the different features that are in it. You'll just have to play around with it and see what kind of things you can do with it. But you have four translations right at your fingertips through that particular app. You have the English Standard, the Legacy Standard, the New American Standard, and the King James. So uh, they'll probably add some more translations in the days to come. I know the guys that have put together that app. They don't do it for any charge. They just love God's word and want to preserve it and make it easily accessible for, uh, for people to use on their smartphone or tablet or, dev or device. So once again, that's called the Literal Word Bible app, and you have a good access to the Legacy Standard uh, translation through that particular app. And then can even go back and forth between the ESV and the LSB if the ESV is what you're familiar with. So what I'm reading from here today is the Legacy Standard Bible. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. I'm going to mainly focus on just the greeting today, verses 1 and 2, but we'll read through verse 11 and we'll get to more of the text next week. In honor of the word of the king, would you please stand? This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing to his servant Timothy in Ephesus. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior 
and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I exhorted you, when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach any different doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the stewardship of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our command is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical faith. For some, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and godless, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral persons, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we desire this morning to be reminded of the gospel. May the gospel be ever before us in all that we say and do as a church. And may we never think too highly of ourselves to think that we've got the gospel mastered. We don't master the word of God. The word of God masters us. And so may we desire to be in submission to what we read here today. And desire that as a church we may understand what our calling is as the church of the living God as the body of Christ, how we help and grow one another, and how we as the body of Christ are even to reach out and minister to this world. So teach us and guide us in these things that in light of the gospel, we may know how we are to conduct ourselves as the household of God. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. It was just this past week that we celebrated or commemorated the 506th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That mark in history in which the church rebelled against false teaching. We protested against it, desiring to recapture, to recover the truths that were once for all delivered to the saints in the word of God, that which we call the Bible. There were men that literally laid their lives on the line for the sake of the truth, that we may know it, we may live by it, we may proclaim it to the next generation, as we even read about in the Psalms today, that there would be a people preserved for his holy name, the elect that he has set aside for himself, 
and he had determined this from before the foundation of the world. We mark this time in history even in our name as a church. We are Providence Reformed Baptist Church. Now, what does it mean to be reformed? Even though we look at that point in history, the protest against Roman Catholicism and the false teaching that was going on at that particular time, even though we see that as kind of a mark in history that the gospel was being recovered and, and then uh, uh, being sent around the world once again, what does it mean to be reformed? Well, the, ver the, the word could very easily be synonymous with biblical we could call ourselves Providence Biblical Baptist Church. And that would certainly encompass everything that we mean by using that word reformed. It's not that something new began 500 years ago. It was a recovery of that which was given to the prophets and apostles and written down for us in the scriptures, in the word of God. And so these are things that I was even thinking about when making this transition from Texas to Arizona, from being an associate pastor to a senior pastor again, and leading in the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. What do we mean by reformed? What do we even mean by church when we see that in our name? What does it mean to be the church? You'll hear different slogans that go around in the culture all the time. Don't go to church, be the church. Now, I spent a lot of time in Christian radio, and some of that time in radio was spent in marketing. That's a really bad slogan in marketing. Because you're actually telling people in the beginning of that slogan not to go to church. Don't go to church, be the church. So the impression that one is left with is, I can be the church sitting on my couch. I can be the church going out in nature and enjoying God out in nature. But that's not what we mean by church. As Vodi Bauckham uh, has said and has taught, that being the church is ecclesia. The word itself means to call out. It means to gather. It means to be together as a people that we may worship together. We may grow together under the word of God that is proclaimed. So where could I, as a pastor coming into a new place, you are receiving a new pastor, there's going to be all kinds of different things that we're talking about from these days forward. Talking about the mission that we have in front of us. We, we're even going to be talking about space. How do we maximize the space that we have? What do we need to do to gain more space so that we can actually fit in the room that we gather in? What do we do? Uh, why do we have the order of worship that we have? Why do we sing the songs that we sing? Some of these different things we want to reevaluate and make sure that we are staying in line with what God's word teaches us and expects of us as a church. So where can we begin as we ask these kinds of questions and we embark on this journey of sanctification together as a church? And as I was thinking about these things and praying about it, I came back to 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus over and over again. When I first took over as a senior pastor in 2012, so this was 11 years ago, but the senior pastor left very, very abruptly. It was sudden. Nobody saw it coming. And now suddenly I was thrust into that role and expected to lead the church. And God, by his providence, kept leading me back to these books. And I was reminded again and again the responsibilities of a pastor as laid down in these three pastoral epistles. But these epistles are for more than just pastors to pay attention to. This was, in fact, written to the entire church. 
even though Paul addresses this letter to Timothy, he addresses the third letter to Titus, it is nonetheless written with the expectation that others are going to read it and follow it, patterning themselves after these words that have been penned by the apostle. You can see this at the end of Titus, as a matter of fact, for at the very conclusion of Titus, which Paul wrote to Titus, who was going to the island of Crete and setting the churches there in order, he says at the conclusion of that letter, grace and peace be with you all. Now, why would Paul say that if he's writing to one guy? Well, again, because it wasn't just going to be to one man. These were going to be instructions that he may have addressed to one person, but the entire church was going to read and follow. And so even within 1 and 2 Timothy, we find not just instructions to a pastor on being a good steward in the household of God, but we find instructions to the entire church that we may all be good stewards in the household of God. Now, right up front as we come to this, I want to go ahead and state very plainly the intent of this letter. So that even though Paul doesn't get to this until chapter 3, you may still have it in the forefront of your mind that this is what we are reading. This is what we are gaining to glean from as we go through 1 Timothy together. Keep your Bible open or keep your app on wherever you might be reading the Word of God because we're going to jump around to different scriptures. Where I want to take you first is 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. We're going to stay mostly in 1 Timothy here. But we'll look at some different passages as we come to understand the basics of this letter. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 16. Look at that with me. Paul says, very matter-of-factly to Timothy, here's why I'm writing to you. Verse 14, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here is the central proposition of this letter. And we want to keep this in mind even as we go through these next few months in this letter, to first, uh, this letter of 1 Timothy. In light of the gospel, we are reading about how to conduct ourselves as the household of God. Now that's how we conduct ourselves even in the household of God and even outside as we go into the world. But we're reading about, once again, in light of the gospel that has been proclaimed to us, how we are to conduct ourselves as the household of God. That's the purpose of the letter. And we want to make that our purpose of this study as we go through this letter together. So for this morning, we're doing an overview of 1 Timothy. And my outline is as follows. First of all, we're going to consider the author and the recipient of this letter, and the background, why Paul is writing it, even beyond this central proposition that we've read here in chapter 3. Secondly, we're going to look at the structure or the outline of the letter. How is this letter laid out, and how does it point it to the central theme 
that we have uh, just summarized here that Paul has written in 1 Timothy 3. And then finally, third, we're going to look at the intent of the letter and the main themes. And it's through those main themes that we want to gain some application. It's very easy whenever we do like an overview of a letter when we come into a new teaching or something like that. It's easy to kind of fall into information or knowledge. And then I would just stand up here and tell you some facts about the letter of 1 Timothy. And it's, it's not as easy to gain immediate application. But we nonetheless want to look at the themes throughout the letter and gain application from that so that we understand exactly what we're to do in light of what's being written here. This letter's 2,000 years old, but the Holy Spirit is still speaking through it to us today that we may do the work of God in his church and in this world. So first of all, once again, let's come back to the, uh, the author and the recipient and the background of the letter. Very beginning, once again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, who is the author of the letter? Well, he says right there at the start, Paul. An apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, and who is the recipient of the letter, that's verse 2, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, who is Paul and who is Timothy? These are two names that probably don't need a whole lot of introduction, especially the apostle Paul. Most of the books of the New Testament were written by Paul. He penned more of the New Testament books than any other. Paul, of course, was known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his name as he went to the Gentiles. Lest anyone think it is often said that Paul's name was changed after he came to Christ. That wasn't the case. It was just he was known by two names, Saul to the Hebrews and Paul to the Gentiles, since he was going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 9 is where we read about Paul's conversion. He was going to Damascus to round up Christians, where they were going to be imprisoned and some even put to death because they were choosing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ instead of following the Jewish tradition. And not simply the Jewish tradition according to the Old Testament, but that Jewish tradition that had been morphed and shaped and even twisted according to the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees at that time. So, so Paul, in his zealousness for this false teaching, was going to Damascus to round up Christians and persecute them. And you know his story that on his way there, the Lord appeared to him in a blinding light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus Christ so closely identifying with his own that when you persecute the church, it is the same as if you were to persecute the Son of God himself. Saul, bewildered by this address, says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He sends him to Damascus to a particular house where, where Paul fasted and prayed for three days. A man named Ananias was sent to Paul to lay hands on him. Paul was blinded for those three days, and when Ananias laid hands on him, the scales fell from his eyes and he was able to see, which was not just something that happened to Paul physically, but even something that happened to him spiritually. For now he saw the gospel of Christ and believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And he went from being Saul, a persecutor of Christians, to Paul, an apostle of the Lord, who would now subject himself to that very persecution that he was inflicting. And he would become a man who would lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. 
That's the Apostle Paul. Now, how about Timothy? This man whom Paul is sent to this church that he is writing to. Timothy is mentioned first in Acts chapter 16 at Lystra. He was a young man who had a Greek father but had a Jewish mother. And his Jewish mother raised him in the true word of the prophets and the law that we understand being the Old Testament. His mother's name was Eunice. We learn this in 2 Timothy. His grandmother was Lois. And these two women raised Timothy to know God's word and to follow it. Paul comes and introduces Timothy to the Lord Christ that the law was pointing to and now Timothy comes to understand the gospel and becomes part of Paul's missionary entourage. In fact, Timothy would even become Paul's most trusted servant and an understudy to the apostle Paul. Paul would refer to Timothy as a man that he trusts like no other. And if Paul sent Timothy to a church ahead of himself, that was a high honor. And so Paul even sends Timothy to this church that he greatly loves to Ephesus to pastor this particular church. In 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as a man of God. He calls him that directly in this letter in 1 Timothy 6.11. And then he uses the term more generally, but still applied to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.17. It's actually the only place, the only two places in the New Testament that this phrase man of God is used. And it's used with regard to Timothy. Now that particular phrase is used a lot in the Old Testament. A prophet was called man of God. The first one called this was Moses. In Deuteronomy 33.1, he is called man of God. Psalm 90 is a psalm that was written by Moses. And in the introduction of that psalm, it says it was written by Moses, the man of God. You have other prophets throughout the Old Testament that are referred to as man of God. Elijah is called man of God. Elisha is called man of God. And now Paul calls Timothy man of God. And one of the things that demonstrates is that the work that God appointed a prophet to do is not done. But there is still the work of a prophet to be done, which Paul is now handing to Timothy and saying, you are continuing in this line of succession of responsible work that God sent his prophets to do, that God sends his apostles to do, and now you are to do it as well. Now, Timothy is not given the same office as a prophet or an apostle. The prophets and apostles heard from God. They literally heard from God. They heard from God audibly. God spoke to them, and then they said what God said. And the word of a prophet, when repeated as given to them by God, was always right. You will have prophets today. You will have men who will call themselves prophets, but they are very flawed. In fact, the word that the scripture uses for that is false. They are false prophets. They will say, God said to me to say this to you, but if what proceeds from their mouth is not a verse from scripture, then God did not speak to them. As my friend Justin Peters has said, if you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak to you out loud, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> that is how God speaks to us today. But nonetheless, there is still that work, that mission that was given to a prophet, to an apostle, 
to proclaim the word of God. And that is what Timothy is to continue in. My friends, it's what I'm to continue in. As you have called me to be a pastor in this church, I am to be a man of God, along with the other elders that are here. That we may continue that work of proclaiming God's word, not because he's given us any special revelation through dreams and visions that is unique only to us and no one else receives these things, but by the special revelation that's given in the word of God so that we may read this and study it and come to an understanding of it and give it to God's people that it may transform you and you live according to the words that have been given. As said in Ephesians 4.11, God gave the prophets and the apostles, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to prepare the saints for the work of ministry. So church is not just about, it's not a spectator sport where you all come in and you just come to hear a good speech every Sunday. Some pastors are not worth their salt in giving good speeches. Amen. <laughs> but rather, we are to come together to sit under the teaching of God's word, which the preacher is responsible to handle rightly, giving it to God's people, that we may be conformed to this, specifically conformed to the likeness of Christ and grow according to these things. So Paul gives Timothy that mission, gives him that title, gives him that work. He is a man of God that he may continue in a work that started with the prophets and the apostles and then even continues on with the teachers of God's word to this day. Timothy is not mentioned many times in the New Testament, uh, at least in the book of Acts. His name comes up only six times, but we know that he became part of Paul's missionary brethren in that work that Paul uh, appointed the different brothers to do. Timothy's name comes up 17 times in the epistles. It will either be because Paul mentions him to another church or because we have this direct address to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. We see his name come up once in Hebrews as well, and that's one of those uh, things in the book of Hebrews that ties it apostolically back to Paul. Timothy never speaks in the New Testament. You never see a word of dialogue from Timothy, nor did he write anything in the New Testament. There are some that will argue that he was the writer of Hebrews, uh, but that can't be the case since Timothy is addressed in Hebrews. <laughs> but Timothy never actually writes anything in the New Testament. Nonetheless, is such a, a, a critical figure in the beginning of the church and the planting of churches that was going out in the Roman Empire at this particular time. Timothy has been sent to the church in Ephesus. That is where he is at the time of the writing of this particular letter. Now, where, uh, when was this written is up for debate. Could have been sometime between 63 and 65 AD. It would have been written after the events that we read about in the book of Acts, which finish with the Apostle Paul in Rome, preaching the gospel there, uh, and, uh, and many that come to faith because of Paul being under house arrest. He couldn't go anywhere, but people could come to him, and he continued to preach there in Rome for about a year or two. Paul went from Rome in his first imprisonment. He left and was released from imprisonment, and he went to Spain. Now, we get that from extra-biblical sources, but there's also biblical evidence for that as well. In the book of Romans, chapters 15 and 16, Paul talks about going to Spain, but he wants to come to Rome on that way to Spain so that he may spend time with the Christians there. Now, he probably didn't know that the way he was going to get to Rome was going to be in chains. 
So he certainly fulfilled that promise that he gave to those Roman Christians and came to them and spent much time there. When he was released from prison, he continued that journey westward and made it as far west as Spain. And this is not only uh, his desire, according to what he writes in Romans, but church history records for us that Paul actually did complete that journey. It's a missionary journey that's not recorded for us in Scripture, but men like uh, Eusebius and Clement had written in their writings that Paul did, in fact, complete that journey. When Paul had written to the Philippians, he, it was under that first imprisonment in Rome, and he said to them that the Holy Spirit had said to him that he was going to be released and have that opportunity to see them again and continue the work that God had for him. So where we see Paul imprisoned in Rome at the end of the book of Acts, that's not the imprisonment that results in him being martyred. That would happen later, which Paul writes during uh, his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, but, the, uh, but here is during that time when Paul has continued west. While he's going to Spain, he sent Timothy east to go back to the church in Ephesus. Now, this was a church that Paul loved. In fact, we see Paul's affection for this church more than any other church in the New Testament. He spent a lot of time in Ephesus. We read about in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, when he addressed those Ephesian elders for the very last time, he wept with them. And it says there in Acts 20 that they fell upon his neck and kissed him and wept because in that final address that he gave to those Ephesian elders, he said, on this side of heaven, I will not see your faces again. And so the, uh, we see that deep affection that Paul has for this church. So Paul sent his most trusted protege, Timothy, to the church that he loved the most to be the pastor there. And as Timothy has come into Ephesus to do that work, Paul writes this letter to him to encourage him in that work, and also that this letter would be understood by the Ephesians as continuing that work that they have been uh, instructed to do. So you might, in a certain sense, consider that Paul wrote to, uh, to the Ephesians more than once. You have the letter to the Ephesians that we have in the New Testament. You have this letter that he wrote to Timothy, which would also be sent to the church in Ephesus, and they would follow as well. There's also Christ's address to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. So you see how critical this church was in the uh, beginnings of the church as the church was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. So this is the author and the recipient and the background of the letter. Paul and Timothy, Timothy who's been sent to Ephesus to, to do this work, and Paul writing to Timothy that he may be instructed in this work. So that's the first part of the letter. Secondly, I said we would look at the structure or the outline of the letter. As we consider 1 Timothy as a whole, what are we thinking about here? How is this letter laid out? And what can we kind of have in our minds as a structure considering the intent of the letter? Now, the Holy Spirit is a brilliant writer. Of course, we know that Paul is writing this, but he is writing it under the instruction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Letters are not just random. The epistles that we have in God's word follow a particular structure. And this is a neat thing to study. You probably don't give it much thought because you probably think of a letter in the New Testament the way that you write a letter. 
You might sit down with pen and paper in hand. You probably have certain things that you want to say to the person that you're writing to. And what am I saying? Pen and paper. Nobody writes with pen and paper. We're typing emails anymore. But you just have random things you're going to type, in, uh, you're going to type out or write out if you're still uh, a person devoted to pen and paper. And you, uh, you, you, things are just kind of flowing off the top of your head and you're just jotting those things down. That's not how this letter was written. Paul is not just sitting there with parchment and pen thinking about what are some of the things that I want to say to this protege of mine as he's being instructed in this work in leading the church in Ephesus. There is a, an incredible structure to the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, the first time that I preached through 1 Timothy, which was actually nine years ago, I don't think I had a good grasp on the structure. I was still trying to find the structure the way that we basically outline things. How do we typically do an outline? You have like, what, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, and you kind of have your main points. That's how you do an outline, right? First Timothy actually follows a chiastic structure. Now, I know what you're thinking. Ah, great. We just hired this new pastor, and here he is standing in front of us using giant words like chiastic. What in the world does that mean? Well, the term chiasm very simply is a sequence of ideas that are presented and then repeated in reverse order. This would be easier if I kind of had a visual aid, but uh, where, whereas we might typically outline something as Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, a chiastic structure rather follows A, B, C, D, E, D, C, B, A. So you're kind of building up to a particular point. If you were to outline it, it would be like going up main point and then you're kind of coming back down and repeating even some of those points that you had ascended to to get to the main point. Now, one of the ways that we can identify a chiastic structure in 1 Timothy is because the main point, as we looked at, is right in the middle of the letter, and the letter begins and ends the same way. So if you're ever looking at a passage of Scripture and you see that kind of a structure, you see the main point at the be or you see a point at the beginning and a point at the end, the top and the tail, as they're referred to, that are both exactly the same, and then you have a main point that's right there in the center, you can be pretty uh, sure that you're looking at a chiastic structure. So let's consider that structure in the book of 1 Timothy. This is going to be a very broad overview, and then we're going to look at some things more specifically here in a moment. So first of all, at the very beginning of Timothy, we have the greeting, the commencement, which we looked at here at the start, verses 1 and 2. Next, we have confronting false teachers, in verses 3 through 7, look at what Paul says in verse 3. As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach any different doctrine nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So there's men that have come into this church that are teaching falsely. They're, even, they're kind of teaching whatever suits their fancy. Myths and endless genealogies. What that means, we'll get to that a little bit more next week. And so Paul is saying, don't, don't let them just kind of go off on their own, teaching what they want to teach and even getting into myths that are contrary to the word of God. So you have a confrontation against false teachers at the very beginning, but you also have an establishment or a confession of sound doctrine. Look at verse 8. You have this statement about the law. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then you get to verse 12. Paul shares his own his own testimony. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. 
So Paul's sharing his own testimony, establishing himself as a sound teacher of the word. And then you have a restatement against false teachers in verses 18 to 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some, having rejected it, have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he even names two false teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan. So you have this confession of sound doctrine, you have this uh, a confrontation of false teachers, and then next you have an address of how we are to conduct ourselves as Christians. This goes from chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 13. There are instructions about how men and women are to be in the church. You have instructions with regards to elders and deacons in chapter 3. And then we get to, in chapter 3, that central proposition in verses 14 to 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And here is how you are to conduct yourself in the church of the living God, which is a pillar and support of the truth. So there's the central proposition of the letter, but then we come back into a contrast against false teaching in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Next, we come back again. Uh, so, so since we've made it to the main idea, the central proposition of the letter, then we're working back through those things again. Remember that I mentioned to you that we had a greeting, we have the confrontation of false teachers, we have a confession of sound doctrine, and now we're going back through that again. You have, again, the conduct as Christians that's laid out in chapter 4, verse 6 through 6, 2. Then you have a confession of sound doctrine again in chapter 6, a confrontation there against false teachers as well, and then finally a conclusion in verses 20 and 21, which even comes back to the very thing that Paul had stated in the beginning. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of which is falsely called knowledge, which some, while professing, have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you, the very same way that he started the, the letter. So there's our structure. There's our outline of the letter. And again, you identify structure because it helps to point you to the main and central idea. And we see that idea right at uh, the, the middle in chapter 3 that we may understand how to conduct ourselves as the household of God. Now with that in mind, let's consider the intent of the letter and the main themes. And we'll see in these main themes application that we can take and that we may live according to exactly what we read here in 1 Timothy. Now, here's where we're going to do a lot of jumping around in various parts of 1 Timothy. So once again, I have said that the main idea is that in light of the gospel, how are we to conduct ourselves as the household of God? So we want to consider seven main themes in this letter. And what Paul is instructing Timothy and the church to do and how they apply to us as well. So number one, in light of the gospel, we are to be a holy people. So number one, in light of the gospel, we are to be a holy people. Look at chapter one, verse five. The goal of our command is love from a pure heart, that call to pure heart, the call to purity is a call to holiness, a good conscience, and an unhypocritical faith. Consider chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. 
Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. You have an instruction for the men in the church, and then you have instructions for the women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, with modesty and self-restraint. Verse 10, by means of good works, as is proper for women professing godliness. So you have instructions for men in holiness. You have instructions for women concerning holiness. There's even instructions for the elders and the deacons, how they are to conduct themselves in holiness and, righteous, and righteousness before God. Chapter 3, verse 1. It is a trustworthy saying that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. And consider verse 2, an overseer then, talking about the elders of the church, must be above reproach. That is a call to holiness. He must conduct himself in a holy and reverent way. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Refuse godless myths fit only for old women. That's the literal translation of the Greek there. If you have the ESV, you're probably reading... But avoid irreverent, silly myths. It's just a sim uh, simply another way of saying that. On the other hand, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Those who continue in sin. And this is talking about the elders of the church. If there are elders in the church that continue in sin, reprove in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful. So you have once again a reminder that the elders of the church are to be holy. And in that process of pursuing holiness, you even have confronting and calling out sin. That we would not walk in those sinful ways any longer. But that we would walk in Christ-likeness, pursuing godliness. A desire to be Christ-like is very simply to be like Jesus. The desire for godliness is to be like God that we might be holy and reverent, called out from the world as his church, walking in the righteousness of Christ that we have been clothed in. We even finish the letter with calls to holiness. In chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, and consider especially verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things, these worldly things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So first of all, in light of the gospel, we are to be a holy people. Secondly, in light of the gospel, we are to be an evangelizing people. Amen. Go back to chapter 1 again and look at verses 15 to 16. Paul says, It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Paul talks about the work that he has been called to, to evangelize, to share the gospel, and this is a witness and a testimony <coughs> Excuse me, that he sets before Timothy that Timothy would also continue in this work. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I won't read that word for word, but you have there an address to men and women in the church, how they are to conduct themselves 
And look especially at verse, uh, at verse 1 where it says, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a full knowledge of the truth. A call to evangelism there in that way. We also have in chapter 3, verse 16, when we read the main purpose of the letter, you have that common confession that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, and what's that next line? Proclaimed among the nations. And that's that call to evangelism that even we as a church are to continue in to this day. Chapter 4, verse 10. For it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of believers. So first of all, in light of the gospel, we are to be a holy people. In light of the gospel, we are to be an evangelizing people. And number three, in light of the gospel, we are to be a worshipful people. Consider what we read at the very beginning of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Paul, even in the greeting of the letter, being worshipful. It's not just, dear Timothy. It's not, hey, what's up, brother? I've been thinking about you lately. But he exalts Christ even in the greeting of this letter. And so when we greet and fellowship with one another, may it be Christ exalting. We even worship when we fellowship. Continuing on in chapter 1, look at verse 12. I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, where you have instructions to men and women in the church, how they are to conduct themselves in the body of Christ. They are instructions regarding worship. You had in verse 8 the statement, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, and the instruction to women to live lives of godliness. You have a particular order that's set, responsibilities for men and responsibilities for women. You have the instruction for Elders to be leading in worship. Deacons, likewise, holding their offices in a worshipful way. In chapter 4, verse 5, we have this statement. It is, uh, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That is a statement of worship. In chapter 5, verse 5, now she who is a widow, referring to widows in the church, Indeed, she, she who has been, uh, I'm sorry, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and prayers night and day. So a woman who is a widow continues in this worshipfulness and demonstrates that as an example to the rest of the saints. So we have thirdly that we are to be a worshipful people. And then number four, in light of the gospel, we are to be a working people. Now, contrary to what many have come to believe, work 
is not a result of the fall. <laughs> Work is something that you have to do. And we are told over and over in the, again in the scriptures to work. Adam, before the fall happened, before he disobeyed God and ate from the tree that God told him not to eat from, his appointment in the Garden of Eden was to work it and keep it. This was a, a task for him to do even before the fall had taken place. So there is work for us to do. And there are clear instructions in this letter especially that the church is to do working together in the household of faith. Look at verses 3 through 4. Remember that Paul said, I exhort you. So that very thing that he says there in verse 3, I exhort, that's an imperative. It's an instruction. It's a direction that he's going to give Timothy to do. Don't let anyone teach any different doctrine, but continue to be sound in the faith. Then we have more practical instructions regarding work that come up a little bit later. In chapter 2, verse 10, you have this said about the women in the church, that she is to be a model of good works as is proper for women professing godliness. You have in chapter 3, verse 1, regarding a man who considers himself fit to be an elder of the church. It is a trustworthy saying that if any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good what? Work. He desires a good work. And then you have the office of deacon, and the very purpose of that office is to be a working man in the church, that he would help to meet the physical needs of the body of Christ in his qualifications as a deacon. In chapter 5, we have instructions on how widows are to be cared for and even how elders are to be honored. In verse 25 of chapter 5, it says, So also good works are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. We have in chapter 6, verse 18, this statement. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous, and to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So we are to be a working people. And also in light of the gospel, number five, we are to be a faithful people. Now I'm using this word faithful to not just mean we are to be in the faith, for we are certainly to do that, but using this word faithful as also being synonymous with perseverance. We are to continue and persevere in this faith that we hold. Back to chapter one, verse two again, in that very greeting, where Paul says, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith. This is a man who has been tested. He shows himself to be faithful in all things. And it's because he is faithful that Paul has appointed him to this work. In verse 12 again, where Paul says, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service. In verse 19, Keep faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So you see a contrast with those who were unfaithful. In chapter 2, verse 15, you even have it being said of the women in the church, that she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in what? In faith, in love and sanctification with self-restraint. You have a perseverance that is happening there, a continuance in faithful work. 
In chapter 3, verse 9, regarding the deacons, they are to hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then said of them again in verse 13, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, chapter four verse 14, do not neglect the gift within you which was given to you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And then, last of all, under faithful people, we have in chapter 6, verse 10, money is the root of all evil. Is that what chapter 6, verse 10 says? No, but that's often the way that it gets summarized, right? Chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And by some aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, we're going to get to this when we get to chapter 6. But when you read that verse in context, it's actually about false teaching. The all sorts of evils that are being referred to there are how false teachers love money, so they'll devote themselves to false teaching and will wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. But look at what Paul says to Timothy in verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So this call to be a faithful people. That's number five. Number six, in light of the gospel, we are to be a confessional people. Now, that's also contained within our name as Providence Reformed Baptist Church. The very fact that we call ourselves Reformed is also a declaration that we are a confessional people. And this was another one of those reasons why I wanted to come into a study of First and Second Timothy. For you have continuous statements in these pastoral letters of, of a confession. There are statements that have been summarized that have been distributed to the churches in the tradition of the faith that they are walking in, that these confessions may be repeated and lived by. So you have uh, these confessions like the saying is trustworthy, as we've seen that come up a few times here in 1 Timothy. In chapter 1, verse 15 is the first place that we see that. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy saying. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. It was even confessional in the church at that time that to aspire to the office of elder was a good work to aspire to. In chapter 3, verse 16, we read this morning about the common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness manifested in the flesh Vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And you see that as a summarized confession that the church held to and repeated and preached. We have also in chapter 4, verse 6, pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ, being nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine 
which you have been following. By the way, that word doctrine, which is synonymous with teaching, comes up more in the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus than in the rest of the New Testament combined. It is, it, they are in uh, a very instructional letters regarding the sound teaching of the faith that we are to hold to. So, we have, let me summarize these six that we have thus far. Number one, in light of the gospel, we are to be a holy people. Number two, we are to be an evangelizing people. Number three, we are to be a worshipful people. Number four, we're to be a working people. Number five, we're to be a faithful people. Number six, we are to be a confessional people. And here is my last one. We've already hit noon. I know I'm going over time, but you've already hired me, so you're stuck with me now. I don't have to meet those time constraints anymore. I may go as long as I want. Number seven, we are to be a loving people. And we saw this even in the very beginning of the letter that Paul said plainly to this mission that he has given to Timothy that the goal of our command is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and an unhypocritical or in some of your translations sincere faith. In chapter 1, verse 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus was more abundant with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We are to love one another because God loved us. As said in 1 John, we love because he first loved us and gave his life as a ransom for many. Chapter 2, verse 15, the women in the church are called to love. In chapter 3, verse 3, the elder of the church is to be somebody who is committed to love and should be free from the love of money. In chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on you because of your youthfulness, Paul says to Timothy, but show yourself as a model to those who believe in word, conduct, love, faith, and purity. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man, but rather plead with him as a father to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity, loving one another. And the instructions that then follow throughout chapter 5 is how we may love one another in very tangible ways, in those works of service, even within the body of Christ. And I'd already mentioned to you chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. In verse 11, but you, O man of God, are to pursue love. These are the things that we may apply to ourselves as the household of faith, that in light of the gospel, how are we to conduct ourselves as the household of God? My friends, we are to be holy. We are to be set apart from the world, set apart in Christ, that we may model Christ's likeness among one another and even in this world. One of the instructions that's given with regards to the qualifications of elders in 1 Timothy 3 is that he must be thought of well by outsiders. So don't think that we're supposed to be separatist people in this call to holiness, the way that we only commune with each other and not with anyone else. 
But we are even to show ourselves in holy conduct among those who do not believe. We are to be a people evangelizing. And how can we evangelize a people that we make fun of and criticize and call down and turn our noses up at? And think that we're too good for them and I'm not supposed to be among them. No, we are to be in the world but not of the world, as the saying goes. As Jesus said to his own disciples, we are to be evangelizing, which means we must be in the world sharing the gospel. We are to worship as we gather together today to do. And we even come to this table, the Lord's table, as an act of worship, remembering the body and the blood that was given for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We are to be a working people. Paul said to the Thessalonians, if man is not willing to work, let him not eat. There is a work that we've even all been called to do. There are some that may not be as able-bodied in that work, but those of us who are, who are able to labor even physically in our members, let us do so for the service of the church and to the glory of God. We are to be faithful, holding fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and persevering in this, not being led astray by anything that is going on in this world or any false doctrine, but we remain committed to the gospel. We are to be confessional. We summarize the, the Bible, which is a big book, over 750,000 words, but we summarize those things by our confessions so that we may know what we are to believe and walk in and hold fast to. And finally, we are to love. As God has loved us, so we are to love one another. My friends, these are the main themes that we see throughout the book of 1 Timothy. And may they be the things that we find and see and continue to apply to ourselves as we consider the work that we are to do as the church in this world. So that we may understand this once again, that in light of the gospel, how we are to conduct ourselves as the household of God. It is my pleasure to be here. And may we continue to do this work together. Let us pray.